You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Lissa McClure. She's the executive director of the Woodman Family Foundation, and we're talking about Francesca Woodman's work at Marianne Goodman Gallery. Uh, thanks so much for being with me today, Lissa. Thanks so much for having me. It's really going to be a pleasure to talk to you. So let's talk about this show. Uh, the show is called Alternate, Alternate Stories. It's running from the um, beginning of November to the end of December in 2021. I, I, I feel like we should talk about just where that title is coming from, Alternate Stories, because these are, this is work that hasn't been seen before and is adding to an understanding of, of her work and her life in a way that, that hasn't been presented to the public before. Is that correct? That is our great hope, yes, and I'm, I'm so glad you started with the title because it, uh, it actually comes from, from one of her writings, um, and much of what we've been able to do with this show actually uh, is made possible by the fact that we now own her archives, um, and that includes her journal writings, her notebooks, um, a lot of correspondence with her family and friends, and we are so excited because we feel that we're finally able to really inject Francesca's voice um, and even a bit of her thinking into the choices we make for this exhibition. And um, I, should, I should read you, uh, I think I have it here, um, the alternate stories came from a quote that she, uh, we basically have one interview um, that she did during her lifetime uh, with a, an Italian um, art magazine, photography magazine, and she had written out her answers uh, before the interview, so we have those in her own hand. And actually, we've we've uh, reproduced the the letter with her notes in the catalog for the show, which is super exciting. Um, but she says, I mean, it's a bit of a longer, not long, but let me start, and we'll we'll get to the alternate part. My early interest in literature followed me to art school, and the greatest influences on my work have been the writings of Andre Breton, specifically Nadia Nadja which is composed of some rather random photographs that are expanded into the plot of the story, Colette and Zola. I feel that photographs can either document and record reality, or they can offer images as an alternative to everyday life, places for the viewer to dream in. And we really were struck by that sort of alternate view of life um, that also sort of serves as a double entendre for this maybe alternate view of Francesca's work um, and trying to present her work in a different way, for people to look at it in a different way. I love that, I'm, and I'm so glad you, you read that. I mean, this, you know, this alternate view also strikes me as that, that she is um, the unusual photographer that doesn't go out in search of an image, doesn't find an image, but creates an image, it seems, right? And, and that, they, that, they're, that, they're, that they're constructed and... and you know, and and have a relationship, which I'd like to talk about, as you're bringing up with with um, with a surrealist and with her her trip to Italy. Um, you know, that's that, that that's just so that's just so fascinating. So that's part of her history, also. She's always been this kind of image maker, which is quite distinct in the field of photography. I mean, we could talk about other photographers that do that, but um, but it's a different kind of image making. It is, and it's um, 
it's sort of it's it's about allegory and metaphor, um, but without being uh, narrative. There's no real plot line. Um, but she does. I, I like that quote especially because she she talks about spaces for the viewer to dream in. And I think um, especially in 1980 when she 1979 actually when she wrote that, she was really thinking about what she was trying to do with her photographs. And I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but. One of the things that we've been so struck by is how sort of erudite and purposeful and um, intellectual she was in her approach to image making. So she she both had uh, an intensely sophisticated formal compositional conceptual structure, and then that sort of serves as the scaffolding. I'm, I'm actually quoting Chris Krauss, who who used that phrase in the essay for the catalog, which is fantastic. We should speak about that as well. But those sort of conceptual, formal frameworks uh, were the scaffolding for her then to start improvising and creating these um, sort of scenes. And as you say, no, she was not. Um, she was not. Uh, she she made images uh, from the places she was in. Um, an Italian friend of her hers uh, from, from 77 and 78 said that she was always working. You know, her entire life was basically about, about finding the next photograph and about seeing the world through that lens. So she had this way of being in the world and then imagining. And she wanted to sort of take, like Baton did, you know, take these very ordinary, banal, everyday um, uh, places uh, and turn them into something for allegory, uh, for allegorical sort of enjoyment um, for, for the viewer. And she even was very conscious about wanting to take uh, things that were personal to her and, and evolve them out into allegory as well. So it was not um, self-portraiture just for the sake of photographing herself. It was very much in the service of this other sort of world that she was trying to create. Yeah, which is, which is so so story-like in in a sense mm-hmm. these are these are narratives really and um i mean what, what what is extraordinary about all of this that that maybe even some listeners don't know is that we're talking about a woman a photographer an intellectual um that died mm-hmm. at the age of 22 uh, yeah. you know by by suicide this is a remarkably short life and and to have the kind of influence that she's had over, I think, a generation or more of photographers after her who were, you know, emulating her work in colleges everywhere. Um, she's had an enormous influence. And um, it's, 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 it's extremely unusual, I think, for an artist. I can't think of a, of a peer that's had that kind of influence. But also that because her life was cut so short, that that's, that's also a big part of her story, isn't it? I mean, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, that's intertwined in, in how we look at these images of, of angels and, and, uh, and with incredible pathos and, and emotion, and, 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 and we imagine, perhaps falsely or romantically, that, that this was part of, of her struggle, of her, of her struggle with, um, I don't know if it's really framed as, as mental illness or just a depression because things didn't work out, but um, but that's part of this, isn't it? The the story. That's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. Um, I well, you, you mentioned many things I'd I'd like to to comment on. Um, one is yes, it's extraordinary, but you know, a young woman who who made her first mature photograph at the age of thirteen. 
and who arrived at our school fully formed already, so was able to sort of use her classes and, and the exercises and compositional studies that she had to do to really enhance her own um, process. You know, she, she was very much, all of the friends and uh, colleagues that were there with her at RISD felt very much that they were in the, in the presence of, of a fully formed artist, and she was sort of just in a league of her own. Um, it is extremely unusual, I think, um, to have such a short span of work and then to have such a long influence. Um, I think part of, part of that influence is that she, she did use her own body or the female body, and, and that's both personal and intimate, and she made herself vulnerable that way, but she was also completely empowered that way. You know, she turned the subject-object binary on its ear, and she um, was very much in control of everything that she did. So, so I think there's just something that's very um, appealing and relatable in some, in some strange way. And then also what she was trying to do was, what we said before, was create these worlds that the viewer wanted to enter. And I think she was extremely um, talented at doing just that. She knew how to make a really powerful photograph. And viewers then and viewers now look at them and are drawn in. It's, it's almost as if you can't resist what she's set up for you. And, it, and I believe it's because she has both the technical and formal mastery and because her, her imagination was so vivid. Um, and she was also just a very unconventional person and she lived in a very eccentric way. You know, she was sort of, she, she, she made a version of herself, this sort of construct of Francesca who was the, the subject of some of this artwork. And, it, um, and then she walked in the world as herself, but almost in a performative way as well. She dressed in vintage clothes. You know, she often cited... Victorian literature. She said she went to boarding school because she felt it was a very Victorian thing to do, and she had been, you know, um, interested in Victorian mm -hmm. literature at that time. So, I think the, I think a lot has been, and, and I understand um, the allure of of reading her work now, knowing of of how short her life ended and that she took her own life. You know, reading it through that lens, but. I really believe it's a very reductive lens and a limiting lens. And I, part of what we're doing um, with the show, and, and the show comes out of the fact that we, we are a nascent foundation and, and we've just received in the last year or so Francesca's inventory and her archive. Um, and that includes contact sheets. Um, and it also includes every photograph she ever kept. And that's another point because she made a lot of prints. And you may have seen, you know, there are many... Uh, fabled stories of her studio in Providence with, you know, um, rejected prints strewn on the floor, you know, and, in, and she invited friends to come and take what they wanted. Um, those often show up at auction now um, and sell for quite a great deal of money. But um, she was very, very particular on the prints that she chose. So, so in, in receiving this bequest um, from her parents' estate and literally going through and looking at every single photograph, um, my colleague, our, our curator, Katarina Jaranek, who has worked with Francesca's work and with Betty and George for many years, um, we were just stunned at all of the image that, images that we had not seen before and also that many of those images were sort of the shots that she took before or after much more iconic, well-known images. And she printed them and she kept them and, and, and she was extremely organized. Um, her photographic archive was... Was in, 
in extremely good shape um, upon her death. So we really feel, by looking at both the contact sheets and and the prints, that that she was thinking in more serial ways. And and these groupings just really presented themselves to us. And and it sort of it adds a whole layer of how you look at her work. I mean, it's there's repetition, there's seriality, um, there's definitely a performative element. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of action. Um, and, and you get this even greater sense of these scenes or stages being set. Um, you know, I'm, I think in the show there are 21 works that have never been seen, almost half the works. And it, it was the biggest thrill to, to think about when we were just uh, laying out the show, thinking about the installation this week. Um, and it's such a thrill to think that people will come in and see a work that they probably have seen reproduced many times and then see a sequence of three or four other images that relate to it and take you somewhere else. Um, and it's just a very different way of looking at her work. So I would say the biography um, is important, but one of our, our sort of missions uh, in the foundation is to really try to, to broaden people's um, perspectives and also to, to really give Francesca her voice and let, let her choices and her decisions sort of um, dictate how people see the work rather than all of the theorizing and analyzing that has been sort of put on her uh, posthumously based on, you know, the realities of her death. It's a, it's a tricky situation, so we don't want to shy away from it, but we just think there's so much more. Um, and, and right, there's, there's, a way to, there's, a way to re, there's a way to reframe it, really. I mean, you know, exactly. Um, That's exactly. But because of all this material that you now have, all these, you, yeah. you know, writings, images, you know, her entire archive, which is well organized, you, you, and it sounds like it's the mission, you know, of the of the foundation. But but correct me if I'm wrong. But you have a chance to tell her story in a new way. I mean, I mean, this may be an odd comparison, but not so similarly between. This, this Beatles film, Let It Be, is coming out that's telling a revisionist story of the Beatles, right? The Beatles were this group that were broken up apparently by you know, Yoko Ono, and which was a kind of a, a sexist notion then, and, and, and then they were a group that hated each other, whereas a new film of the same footage shows the opposite, you know? Um, and so, so that's, that sounds like that's part of the Foundation's... Um, mission right to to tell these stories in in a different way which is which is why we're also talking today and and to and to put a different lens on that history which has been um kind of distorted for a while i think so yeah and and i would say that that also presented itself as our mission based on looking at the work right it it's it's different than sort of theorizing or coming up um, with a list of things you want to do uh, that would be helpful in reframing or, or revi- revising. I, I think revisionist seems maybe a little too strong because we don't want to, not trying to erase or eradicate anything that's come before, but I think reframing was a really great word that, that you chose. And, and, and I think we just feel like we have the material to sort of make the case. It's, it's not that we're sort of picking and choosing and trying to, we, we've made a decision about how we want to present her and, and then we're trying to put together a, a group of works that might make that case. We actually just, the case was made to us upon looking at the works. And so now we get this amazing opportunity to start sharing them with the public, which is just so genuinely uh, exciting for us. 
It is exciting, and, yeah. um, and congratulations on that and this work. So that leads us to, I, I think, the one more thing I'd like to talk about, which is the Chris Krauss catalog, um, yes. because that, 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 that articulates just what, what, what we've been saying in, in, in the last few minutes, right? Yes, definitely. Uh, we were so thrilled that she wrote um, for many reasons, um, one of which is that you know, she's about the same age as Francesca, and, and you, she's so well-known for, for her writing and, and for sending out text and all of that. But she also you know, lived in, she was part of the downtown New York art scene in the 70s and 80s. So she, she has real lived experience of the time that Francesca was here. And I think it was, it was a great pleasure for us to just see, see where she went. And, and, and she actually sort of came to the same conclusions as we had come to, and, and we were not connected to her, um, sort of telling her what we hoped she would write. It was very much her own. She had written on Francesca before. She uh, spoke at the Louisiana Museum on Francesca's work last summer. Um, and, and she's written a lot of art criticism as well. So she was just the perfect person. And, and we were just um, really taken by her perspective. And, and I think she was so uh, right on and spot on um, sort of placing Francesca as sort of not sitting in, you know, being at the wrong place at the wrong time in the late 70s, early 80s in New York that was all about you know, mass culture and um, punk and um, sort of American kitsch in a way. And Francesca was just of another time. You know, she just lived in another time. And also pointing out that her time in Italy was one where she totally fit in for the first time. And she was among peers. And because she was so steeped in Italian art history and culture, you know, she, she went to second grade in Florence. She spent, since her since infancy, she spent significant parts of every year in Italy with her family. Um, so she kind of came into her own, and I think the work shows it. You know, she's... Anyway. Um, but, yes. Chris, so so the, Chris, the, the work, Chris yeah, they know about her early experience in Italy, but the work shown is from the period when she was in Italy and having kind of incredible experiences with other yes. intellectuals and, and influences. The, the work at, at Marianne Goodman is, is all coming from that uh, Italian period, or is it a combination of periods? It's a combination, and um, periods is always such a it's a strange way to talk about a very finite number of years. But yes, so we have we have worked from Providence when she was in um, Providence at RISD, and then a lot of work made in that year she spent in Rome at the in the RISD honors program, uh, and then a couple of works uh, from New York as well when she moved back to New York or moved to New York in 1979 when she graduated from RISD. Oh, and that's well, actually it's been another a interesting thing. Um, sorry. No, 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 go on, go on. Yeah, another interesting thing. Tell me, yeah. Just that, um, that, that chronology or periods seem less interesting and important, and when we approach the work thematically, um, works from Providence and works from Italy fit together and have relationships um, and contextualize each other in, in interesting ways. So we're really enjoying looking at that kind of holistically also. That's so exciting. Um, so what is the future goals of this? But before I ask you the last question, what is the, the goals of the foundation moving forward? Um, Francesca Woodman seems to continually have tremendous interest in the, in the, in the public realm. Shows continue everywhere. Will it be um, essentially managing all those shows and, and, and how she's uh, framed, so to speak, or is there um, other, other 
uh, missions going on there. I think that's that's part of it. And I mean, we also have have um, work in archives, the archives of, of both Betty and George Woodman as well. So we're sort of doing this on on three different um, artists. But yes, for Francesca, I think we definitely want to uh, have scholars. Um, and curators and writers looking at her in a different way, in a new way. Uh, once we get through this sort of Herculean task of, of cataloging her archive, uh, our plan is to eventually open a study center uh, and invite scholars to come in. We've actually been very um, pleasantly surprised that we're already getting uh, a younger generation of scholars who are very interested in her work, some wanting to make films, an Italian uh, filmmaker um, and writer just wrote um, a book on Francesca. Um, scholars coming out of the Sorbonne and Oxford are, are writing on her work, so that's equally exciting. Uh, and then we also have projects that we're discovering as we go through this material that we've, we've now got um, that could be very interesting to people. And I think uh, we'd like to open that up so that people can can do their own research in, in those archives. and. Um, yeah, yeah. So we we have we have infinite possibilities and and a lot of work ahead of us, but uh, a great a great type of work. Yeah, that's very exciting. Yeah, I look forward to all of that. There's, it sounds like there's so much more to see and learn. Then, um, and so glad that that that's happening. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I encourage all listeners to go see this show, or, or if it's not up by the time you're hearing it, to research more because there's plenty online. And I want to ask you one more question. Um, Lisa, what are you, what are you reading at the moment? (laughs) Um, Well, let's see if I go with my, um, my professional, the professional side of my brain. Um, Francesca is included in this big survey of feminist art um, out at the Berkeley Art Museum that Apsara Dickensio curated. And I'm sort of making my way through that catalog, which includes, a great interview with uh, Judith Butler and Mel Chen, which is, you know, amazing to hear the two of them talk. Um, personally, on, on my nightstand, I'm reading Ocean Bombs on Earth for Briefly Gorgeous, um, and it, it's incredibly powerful and moving, and he has such a way with language, but it is also, um, I, there's that term, achingly beautiful, I think it's thrown around, but it, 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 it really is. Um, his language is so gorgeous, and his the trauma um, and the body on the body that, that he describes in childhood is, is also so, so painstaking. But anyway, so those are my the two sides of my brain. Well, thank you, uh, Lisa. I so appreciate your time and uh, and the work you're doing on behalf of the foundation. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Maynard. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.